We may not have a king as the Egyptians did, but we certainly have kingships, things that are too big to fail and things that we ideologize and, and divinize. Usually when you think of going to Italy, you think of all the culture, all the art, uh, history. Well, I wouldn't use the word happy. There's not a word to describe my feelings. I am just, ah, uh, I mean, I'm full of joy and hope. And it's, uh, yes, this is exactly, exactly what I was, I was hoping for. You've never seen snow till you've seen it snow in Seattle. And the rain. Why, if you get wet in Seattle spring rain, you won't want to take a bath for a month because you don't want to wash off how, how clean you feel. But the big thing, ladies, I'll tell you about the big thing. I bet you think you know what the color green is. Evergreen, that's what it is. Green, like the morning the world started. Green, like the carpet of Adam and Eve. Green like the morning the Lord first painted his garden. Green, forever green. Yes, sir, ladies, we got everything in Seattle, everything. But we haven't got you. And if we haven't got you, we haven't got anything. That's Caraconi, Francis Mays, Victoria Beach, and Robert Brown. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Caraconi is a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. She has written a book called The Good Kings. Kara talks about the lessons we can learn today from the five pharaohs in ancient Egypt. Best-selling author Francis Mays recently completed a book called Always Italy, the best places to stay, to eat, and to tour. Now, Francis Mays wrote Under the Tuscan Sun, which was eventually made into a movie starring Diane Lane. Seattle politics took a contentious turn over the last several years, but there is reason for hope. Victoria Beach, a citizen activist, explains her reasons for optimism. Now, Victoria was the one who stood up to demonstrators in her Capitol Hill neighborhood when the riots in Seattle were hitting a very critical mass. And finally, you heard the booming voice of Robert Brown enticing women to move to Seattle. Well, of course, this took place a long time ago, and for those who remember a TV show called Here Come the Brides, Robert Brown was the star. Later on, I will describe how we cross paths and what a special man is. The main reason I bring this to your attention is that Robert Brown turns 95 years old today. That's if you're listening to the show on November 17th, 2021. I wish him a wonderful birthday, and I will provide a way for you to wish him a happy birthday later on in the show. At the end of today's show, we'll continue with our series on One Hit Wonders. The criteria is what it sounds like. The song becomes a huge hit, then the band fades about as fast as it came onto the scene. Hint for today's song, bring your flute so you can play along. And for some more good news, well, I think it's good news, Washington residents are among the most vaccinated in the nation, according to the Mayo Clinic. Back with my interview with Kara Cooney in just a moment. 
When a flock of geese knocked out two engines on U.S. Airways Flight 1549 right after takeoff from LaGuardia Airport, who would you want in the cockpit? Captain Sully or a pilot on their maiden flight? If Captain Sully was your choice, then experience is important to you. And that's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. A variety of topics are explored, including local and national public affairs, self-employment, travel, lifestyles, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. My guest is author Kara Cooney, a professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. She has written a book called The Good Kings, Absolute Power in Ancient Egypt and the Modern World. The book explores the lives of five pharaohs, as Bill Maher would say, my old job, who ruled Egypt with absolute power, shining a new light on the country's 3,000-year empire run and its meeting today. Cooney helps us to understand why so many of us often give up power to just a few people and what that can mean to the future. As the first centralized political power on earth, the pharaohs can tell us a lot about the world's politics of the past, present, and future. I sought this interview because I wanted to see if she could provide any insights into our current state of divisions and rancor in this country and see what we can expect in the future. Turns out, she can't. First, I just wanted to ask you, how did you get into your profession? I'm fascinated by that. Egyptian art and um, architecture. How did you that come about? It's a question that one Egyptologist will never ask another because we know there's no answer. And it's mad and strange that we decided to go all in with these ancient peoples whom we've never met and can't never meet. Um, I've always loved everything old and dead ever since I was a kid. I don't know why, um, whether it's the ancient Mayans or the ancient Romans or Stonehenge, whatever. Um, but Egypt was always the thing that just grabbed my heart and I followed, um, and was allowed to follow as a, as a female of the (laughs) species. Like my brother, he would have been a great academic, but he, he felt he needed to become a lawyer and a lawyer he is. Um, and so I was able to take the more risky path. So there was nothing you remember, like when you were like five or six years old, that you went, you went some exhibit and you just absorbed, or was it just something that came along as you were growing up? When my mom went to the, she went to London when I was about seven, and she brought home four books by this publisher called Usborne, and they're all these little picture books that show people living their lives in the ancient world and they have all the little details a child would want like there's the bathroom and there's the how you take care of the horses and you know this is the what the bedroom looked like and i had one for rome one for egypt one for the medieval world and um i can't remember the the oh vikings had a viking one and the the egyptians were just the ones that i felt 
I needed to know more about. And when I was, and I didn't figure this out until I was in college, that I could actually devote my life to studying these people. <laughs> and when I learned that, I was like, oh, okay, that's what I'm going to do. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and, that's I, what and, you're I, doing. and it's still the gift that keeps on giving. You know, Egypt is not, it's not boring. <laughs> it's, it's very well, interesting. What I'm really fascinated in thumbing through the book and reading parts of it and getting more into it, assure you, after the interview, is that. What I really like what you have done here is we talk about the pharaohs of Egypt, or you do, and then you fast forward and you apply it to today, what we can learn from that. And I kind of like that kind of bridge. Yeah, it's crazy in a way, but in another way, it makes perfect sense. Egypt is strange to us. It's, they have these weird crowns and sticks and staves, and they just look, they look different. And we can see the authoritarianism and the religious ideology used to prop it up very clearly. Now, for the Egyptians, that was all normal for them. It may look bizarre to us, but they were embedded, and it looks completely like it should be. For us in our world, we have our own sticks and staves and crowns that we can't even see because we're so deeply embedded in our world that it's hard to see where the ideology begins and ends. And Egypt is, is my way of waking myself up, waking all of us up and saying, we're the same. Get rid of the modern exceptionalism. I hope the pandemic is driven out, out of all of us. And th- this is the same system. We may not have a king as the Egyptians did, but we certainly have kingships, things that are too big to fail and things that we ideologize and, and divinize. And, um, and, I, and I even make the point in the book that our democracy or republic, whatever you want to call it, we have made these things ideological. You can't rewrite the Constitution. It's a sacred text. Or, you know, don't criticize... George Washington, it's a, it's a, he's like a sacred god-king, in a sense, of, of our country. And um, I'm using Egypt to try to get us to realize that our system is very much the same, especially now that we are, I believe, on the cusp of changing it. Certainly seems uh, we're heading in that direction. Um, so talking about leadership, there were five pharaohs. Um, and what length of time did that cover? Yeah, I start with Khufu, who's 2500 BCE, and then I go to Samwaster III, who's around 1800 BCE, and then Akhenaten, 1350, Ramses II, uh, 1200 BCE, and then Taharqa, who's the 700s um, BCE. And so it's, you know, it's a couple thousand years uh, spread. Um, Ancient Egyptian culture and civilization is over 3,000 years. That's the other gift that Egypt gives us. We have our little paltry 250 years, maybe 400 if you count the time before we became a nation as the United States of America. And Egypt allows us to prognosticate in a sense. What are the rises? What are the falls? How long does change take to occur? And it it allows a a bit of historical witchcraft, if you like, to, to understand that as an Egyptologist working with this stuff for decades, I know in my bones that it takes hundreds of years to make it through a big process. And we're just entering 
what I believe is a very big process. And it will take us hundreds of years as well. We can't expect to go back to normal, as people often say in the media, or, you know, when, when will we all see sense and get along again? <laughs> this, is, this is a long fire that we all get to walk through. Together. So you're not uh, watching CNN every morning going, oh, my gosh, we, my hair is on fire here and, and there. This is something you're more detached at 10,000 feet looking at going, okay, this is going to be around for a while. Just decide how you're going to run your life and keep keep abreast of it. But it's not going to uh, go away very soon. No, you're exactly right. I, I try not to get in the trenches and get as emotionally connected to all of these things. I, I pay attention. I read headlines. But I don't participate in the mania because it doesn't help me to see from a distance. With an eagle's eye view... Uh, and to, because we're all panicking and panicking isn't going to help. And it certainly doesn't give you clarity. It, it just gives you fear and panic and fear is exactly what is going to make all of this fire. Fire is never fun. Like a divorce is never fun or a breakup is never fun. That's what we're doing with each other. We're breaking up. We're breaking up with patrons that used to serve us. Um, like, I, you know, I, I work in a university system at UCLA, a brilliant university. Universities around the United States used to have full-time employment of professors, and now it's all a gig economy of Uber drivers who come in and teach a class here and a class there. And I train grad students who thought they were walking into something different. I thought that the, the subculture that I was a part of was, was better, and it's not. And I think everyone in the United States is like, wait, my world was supposed to – be the good one. It was supposed to take care of me. And there was an ideology surrounding that. I think all of us are, are having our eyes open to how much exploitation there is in patriarchal systems um, and, and what we can potentially do about it in our choice-making go of going forward that isn't fear-based, but is based on a long-term, careful str- strategy. Of the five pharaohs, who would be the one that was most, let's say, authoritarian, and then the one that was maybe most uh, a pharaoh of the people? Oh, that's an interesting question. I would say the most authoritarian, the one who, who was allowed to do some wild and crazy things and yet who created the, his own destruction very quickly, was Akhenaten. Akhenaten created arguably the world's first monotheism. And if you don't think it's monotheism, then I don't know what the Roman Catholicism was that I grew up with. <laughs> because, you know, you have God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then you have all these saints. It's polytheism in practice, truly. And, and Akhenaten is there saying there is one God. It is the Aten. And the only way to the Aten is through me. And he creates a binary that, that works so well for politics so that it's clear you're either with him or you're against him. You're either loyal or you're not. And Akhenaten's political changes are so enmeshed with the religious changes that it's hard to see where one ends and the other begins. And he had a 17-year reign of extraordinary change, and he was allowed to implement um, all of these, these changes. But as soon as his reign is over, the Egyptians are like, oh, my goodness, we're done with this. They smash all his stuff, and they move on. It, it was, but it's a very destructive time to, to be an Egyptian. The most man of the people is maybe somebody you don't expect, but that would be Ramses II, whom we call Ramses the Great. He is our populist king. 
And he's there in the Kadesh reliefs on his chariot with the reins wrapped around his waist, fighting alongside his men. He's saying in the Kadesh reliefs, I alone can fix it. I alone can win this battle. But he names the certain um, men that he's fighting with, groups of men, mercenary men, and he's there like, he's presenting himself like Maximus in the Gladiator movie. <laughs> um, they're, they're alongside his guys. And, and he's divinized um, in that way as like the good military general who, who makes sure that his base is properly paid and, and cared for. Hmm, interesting. You also wrote a book called When Women Ruled the World. What was that about? And I guess during this time, there were some women who were in leadership positions. Yeah, it's an extraordinary thing that the ancient Egyptians allowed women into power, into the highest position of power, as nothing less than king, systematically and regularly. And we have celebrated this, we Egyptologists, and said, oh my goodness, look at these women. It means the Egyptians were somehow more enlightened than anybody else. And the book that I wrote, When Women Ruled the World, with that sly title, is a, is a bit of a tragedy, because it's arguing that these women were allowed into power as placeholders to keep an authoritarian regime going, because women don't have a social base of power to pull a military to them. They're able to connect one authoritarian leader to another male authoritarian leader. And as soon as their successful rule is over, they're erased from the history books which is why you probably don't know about Hatshepsut or how to pronounce her name or Mernath or Nefru Sobek or Tawasret, these female leaders. But so, so I guess the, the connection between the two when women ruled the world and the good kings is a discussion of patriarchy. What is rule by the fathers? What does it mean? It's not man-hating to say that you're anti-patriarchal. There are many men who are now exposing the exploitations of the patriarchy themselves. And every time we talk about the abuse of a priest or a, a Roman Catholic priest or, or, sorry, or a Boy Scout troop leader or, um, or, or somebody like that, you are being anti-patriarchal. And that's, that's very much the discussion that I think we're going through today. Um, and it's what those two books are about. It's me trying to figure out what is the patriarchy? How does it work upon our minds? How do we tell us stories, ourselves stories about the patriarchy so that we don't see it as such? And I'm trying to pull down the barriers between ourselves and the ancient Egyptians to get my readers to see that we're the same. We're, we're just like these ancient people. We, haven't, we have computers and satellites and all kinds of things, uh, but, we, but we're using the same patriarchal systems as we were before. And now for the first time, I would say we're hitting a bit of a barrier. Uh, humanity has reached 8 billion almost. The earth is um, dealing with wildfires and flooding and heat the way it never has before. And this patriarchal system, it smashes and grabs and hoards resources. It'll collapse and then it'll remake itself into something bigger on and on. Except that I think the earth is like, yeah, I don't think you can do this anymore. <laughs> you can't sustain it. Um, it's, um, it's an extraordinary thing that this patriarchal system seems like the only way we humans can live. And yet it's only been around for 10,000 years at best and much less in most places. That's nothing 
in terms of the human existence. Yeah, and then you put it in perspective that, what, we're about 300 years out of that. And so it's all very new and uh, interesting concepts because, yeah, it's just so, so what's been around has been around for a while. We seem to cycle through different eras and times, but that's kind of the way the world has worked for thousands of years. For thousands of years, yes, and because it is the water in which we swim, we have a hard time seeing anything else. And as we go through what I like to call the great American awakening, <laughs> um, we're suddenly seeing that there is a tipping point, that there might be a different way, that, that maybe we don't want one man like Jeff Bezos to be worth $300 billion. If we don't have kings, then what is that? How are we to understand what our what our civilization and our system is, and and maybe we have some breaking up with pharaohs to do ourselves? Anything else before we go? Um, just know that you can find me on Facebook and Twitter, and I just started a new podcast called Afterlives with Kara Cooney. That's Kara Cooney, professor of Egyptian art and architecture at UCLA. She just started a podcast called Afterlives with Kara Cooney. It's on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. The book again is called The Good Kings. I would suggest just Googling Kara Cooney, and that's K-A-R-A Cooney, C-O-O-N-E-Y. You can find out about this book, The Good Kings, other books she's written, and more about her podcast. Again, Kara Cooney, K-A-R-A-C-O-O-N-E-Y. Best-selling author Frances Mays is with us. She recently completed a lavishly illustrated book called Always Italy. The book is published by National Geographic and features all 20 regions of Italy, the best places to stay, eat, and tour. What she submits is that each region in Italy, all these 20 regions, are vastly different. They have their own wine, food, customs, etc., so again, it's like 20 countries within a country. That's what I would uh, gather from that. Miss Mays has written bestsellers, which includes Under the Tuscan Sun, that was made into a movie starring Diane Lane. And this movie loosely depicted Francis Mays' sudden move from the Bay Area to a villa near Cortona, Italy, which is the place I visited in about 2006. My first question, you've written numerous books on Italy, including Under the Tuscan Sun, now, what is different, or what were you trying to accomplish in this book? Always Italy was a huge research project for me. I went to all 20 regions of Italy, and I guess that's what's different. In my other books, I've been to a lot of Italy. Like, my last book was See You in the Piazza. It was new places to discover in Italy. But this book, Always Italy, is each region of Italy. I traveled a lot, but... Much to my surprise, the places I hadn't been and had kind of put off going turned out to have some of the most surprising and immense pleasures that I have ever had traveling in Italy. What would be some of those places? Um, oh, I had been uh, to Sicily before, but I had never been to um, way south in Calabria, Basilicata, Molise, Abruzzo. I really didn't know the south as well, and I so fell in love with it. I think because I grew up in Georgia where it's hot, I have an affinity for uh, 
hot climate. But I just couldn't believe that I had never been to these places before once I got there. They offer, in, uh, in addition to all the great cultural things about the north and the central Italy, that all the art, they have their they have their great artists and architects too, but what amazed me the most was the architecture, the Baroque architecture. There's so much of it in the South because this huge earthquake shook everything down in the 18th century and had to be rebuilt in the Baroque style of the time. So much outdoor activity. Usually when you think of going to Italy, you think of all the culture, all the art, uh, history, but there's so much to do outside other than beaches and skiing, which Italy, of course, is known for. But uh, my co-author and I really researched a lot of the hiking trails in Abruzzo and Molise, the little hidden towns that you can hike from one to the other, even these small-scale little trains you can take. So many uh, opportunities for cycling. It was an eye-opener to me that there was a whole world out there of outdoor life that Italy is up there with any other country that, you know, you might want to go to for exploring the outdoors. My thanks to Frances Mays for being here with us today. And again, her book is called Always Italy. The book is published by National Geographic and features all 20 regions of Italy. A lot of illustrations, so I think you really will enjoy the book. Just want to let you know, I'm not paid a promotional fee to promote this book or any other book that you hear on the show. Victoria Beach is a fourth-generation Seattleite and has been deeply involved in Seattle politics, particularly over the past couple of years. She gained significant recognition during the Seattle demonstrations that followed the murder of George Floyd in May of 2020. She confronted demonstrators outside her Capitol Hill apartment during one evening after the demonstrations turned into vandalizing property and setting fires. As an African-American, one of her concerns was that these demonstrators were hijacking the Black Lives Matter movement. She wanted nothing to do with the destruction of a city she loves. The demonstrators had their agenda, and she and the vast majority of African-Americans in Seattle wanted nothing to do with it. In your background, when did you come to Seattle, and, and uh, when did you become interested in being, I guess, an activist and well, I was born and raised here. Uh, there's four generations here in Seattle. So um, this is my home. And my, my grandfather was an activist, and my dad was in his own way. And, and I, I think my, my family always stood up for what's right and... and um, was very vocal, so I think that it, it just started at at an early age. And uh, you know, I remember uh, um, some type of protest or something, and I think I was about eleven. That was going down Broadway, and the, the group of neighborhood kids and myself 
we weren't in the, the march, but we were on the sidelines and we were just screaming at the police. And so that, I think, 11 is my earliest memory of being an activist. You were saying, were the uh, people on the sidelines screaming at the police or was the parade about the police and, and they need reforms? You know what, I don't, I don't remember what it was about, but I don't know what the march was about. But, of course, you know, the, the police were were following the protest and and we my all of us were like 11 12 we yelled at at the police that was driving and one actually chased us yeah okay i I wish i could remember what what it was about yeah no problem you're 11 years old i don't remember you know things two years ago (laughs) so 11, I, I can understand that. But again, I guess yeah. what is interesting, or maybe that's not the word, but the connection that you remember or first encounter with the police was chasing you. And you're not sure what it was about, but okay, now it kind of starts here. And so that is kind of a milestone in terms of the development, because certainly now you are uh, chair of a citizen's council in helping um, guide the police in Seattle. Right. You got some real big recognition, I would say, in terms of that the video that went viral in the protest that uh, about over a year ago with some of the marches coming down your street. And I thought I can speak for you or please correct me, is that you felt that they were really hijacking the Black Lives Matter movement for their own interests and it wasn't necessarily yours or not even close to that and you were seen really confronting some of the protesters and things that that would be to me probably something that really kind of launched you in terms of becoming an individual really exposed to a lot of what we're going on right now yeah you're you're right um i you know, I, I was involved from day one when downtown um, was set on fire and windows broken, and um, it wasn't the black community doing this. And I, I, I got sick and tired of seeing my city that I love destroyed in the name of Black Lives Matter when it wasn't the black community, they were all young white kids. And so um, it was a year ago, October. Uh, my neighbors had called me and told me that they had just set a fire on my corner. I got out of bed and got dressed and ran out and um, basically went looking for them. And um it took me a while to find them. Actually, they found me because they, 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 I was on a corner and they started to, and I just thought enough, enough is enough. But you know, when I, it was dangerous, what I did confronting that large group, I heard there was 75 to a hundred of them. And, um, but I lost it. And when I look at that video, which I don't look at at all anymore, I don't know who that woman is. You know, I, I completely lost it and just thought, no more. You're not gonna, you're not gonna destroy our city in the name of Black Lives Matter, and you're gonna stop now. And um, you know, they could have hurt me. They in that video, 
whoever videotaped that, well, I know I found out who videotaped it, but um, you don't see the beginning where they surrounded me, completely surrounded me. So they could have really hurt me, but I was just screaming. They probably thought this woman is nuts and <laughs> kept going. But, well, that's um, a good defense. <laughs> <laughs> But, but it, yeah. it, um, you know, after, after that incident, whenever there were any uh, protests or riots, my kids would make me promise that I wouldn't leave the house. And um, a couple times they said, we're going to FaceTime you um, just to make sure you're home. <laughs> well, good for your kids, but... but uh... Yeah I, yeah, I can certainly understand your frustration with that. Certainly, to the degree I will have some of those, but nothing like you have in that moment. Because something I just wanted to um, go through for a moment, and and I saw this like twenty twenty five years ago. It's been a long time, but it kind of changed the way I view some of these incidents that we look at, and kind of your perspective. I wanted to get your comment on this, and. It was a newspaper article that I read, and it had to do with some coverage of a individual who, I guess, stole money from a bank or something. They stole something and ran away. And the reporter who was on the scene said this black gentleman ran down the street with uh, stolen items. And some African-American at the time right under that said, hey, the guy's a thug. Call him a thug. He's not a gentleman. And his point is, is that, and and I kind of felt what he was trying to say is this guy is not representative of the African-American community. And you're putting that into what African-Americans do. They steal and things. You see what I'm driving at? And do you sometimes feel that way when you see the news here locally or as you've grown up, you hear those types of stories and that frustrates you when you hear that or read it? Yeah. Yep. Yep. It's, uh, yeah. A a lot of the times in headlines, you know, they, when they describe stuff, it's, um, especially if they're black, it's, uh, an African American, you know, and, um, I agree with, with, with that, what the guy said, he, he's a thug, you know, and just say um, he's a thug. You know, yeah. and, and, and that's that's kind of the way it is. But it, that was kind of something that I felt that I saw a long time ago that kind of changed the way I thought at the moment. And it kind of has going forward. But you know what? But, you know, even when you said it, I kind of have a hard time with the word thug also because um, for black people, that that's that's what a lot of a lot of people label black people also as thugs. You don't, when, if, if it's somebody, white people aren't, aren't called thugs. They're, they're just not. So maybe I, I have to go back on what I just said. Because um, I don't, I just don't like that word thug. Because well, no, that's fair. What, there yeah. could have been a different um, word used, but yeah, I mean, just just say yeah, use a different word like 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 he's a thief, you know, he's right, a, right, um, okay. because because if you say the word thug, I guarantee you, 
everybody, before they even know what race a person is, they're going to say that person's black. Got it. Ah, good point. Good point there. Um, moving on to something else here. Um, are you happy with the election results locally, generally? Well, I wouldn't use the word happy. There's not a word to describe my feelings. I am just, oh, I'm, I mean, I'm full of joy and hope. And it's, uh, yes, this is exactly, exactly what I was, I was hoping for. Good. Good yeah. to hear. I'm glad to hear that because I know you worked hard on it and um, I'm with you. I'm very pleased how things turned out, but there's still like everything else, uh, like an activist like you and a uh, long ways to go because we still have a city council that is mm-hmm. still out of step pretty much with, I think, the people of Seattle. But hopefully a message has been sent that Seattle is heading yeah. in this direction. And if you want to uh, participate and be part of the solution, you may want to get on board with a more moderate approach as we go forward and get away from this, and I'll say simply anarchy that we've been experiencing for the last couple of years. Oh, I, I agree. I agree. Seattle voters spoke loud and clear on what they want. And, um, and this, it does, it needs to be a wake up call to the rest of the group, you know, I think is it a year or two before the other council members time is up and they, this needs to be a wake up call to them because we will come after you. You know, the, the next thing before that though, is in December is the recall on Sawant. And, um, I'm going to be working on that, uh, you know? Yeah. And I'm hopeful with that also, um, because of, of the turnout of this vote. But, um, yeah, I, I think I think a lot of these politicians need to think twice because Seattle has had enough. Enough is enough. How about you? Have you ever considered running? No. And I'm asked all the time. I mean, from people I don't even know, I get emails. And, and the reason is um, I... I don't know a lot of policies, which everybody says, oh, you'll learn. But I feel like I wouldn't be able to be me. And and I don't want any, I don't want anybody trying to censor me or, um, you know, I, I, I'm me. And I'm, I'm going to do and speak the way I want. Are you going to be involved in um, the process of selecting a new police chief? I hope so. I was asked that yesterday from another reporter, and uh, I hope so. Do you have the faith that um, Mayor-elect Bruce Harrell will be able to keep his campaign promises going forward? Oh, yes. I I know Bruce, and I have more than enough confidence in him you know the the thing is people need to realize it's not going to happen in a year this is a huge problem our city's in a huge mess it's going to take time but he's going to get us on the right right track i was asked yesterday in an interview um what if things aren't um you know everything isn't cleared up in a year you know how i feel there's no way this can be cleared up but i 
I guarantee you that we will see um, change immediately. Yes, he's mayor of the, uh, all the people. I had interviews also with Norm Rice and Greg Nichols and Charles Royer. And one of the things they all said is that they're very aware that there's an election going on. You have different directions you want to take the city and none more than we've gone through the last couple of elections. However, and I think it was Charles Royer who said that once you become mayor, though, you are mayor of all the people. And whether they voted for you or not, Greg Nichols said that too. And sort of Norm, they all said that, that you got to put those partisan politics aside and then govern for the whole city, basically. And I think he's obviously got that too from what you just said. And the other thing I like about Bruce Harrell, as far as running, is that he came off the bench to run because he saw his city in trouble. He was pretty much retired from politics. And those are the types of people I have a very positive attitude towards. They're not seeking office all the time for power. But he came, again, off the bench when he saw his city in trouble. You know, I have to tell you a story about that. When our city started going downhill fast, I called Bruce and I said, you have got to run for mayor. And he laughed. He said, no. He said, you know, I'm where I want to be in my life. I'm content. I'm happy. I'm working on this and that. And and I'm in a place where where I want to be right now. And um, and I was just like, oh, my gosh. I said, we got to find somebody to run. And um, and we talked off and on. And, and actually, he had asked me if I thought about running for city council and I said no but um months later a few months later he sent me a text message and said I need to talk to you and uh and I still have the message too and um I called him and he said I'm running I'm gonna run for mayor I can't let the city go down like this oh that was just that made my night I mean I felt so emotional and the same as you. Bruce didn't do it because, you know, I want to uh, be in a limelight politician, this and that. He did it because he saw what was happening to our city. And he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't stand by and watch that. And, uh, yeah, I have a lot of respect. My name is Victoria Beach of Seattle. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. first TV series that features Seattle as the backdrop, I believe, was Here Come the Brides that aired in the late 1960s and early 70s. The show was based loosely on Seattle's history in the late 1860s. Seattle had a problem. There were plenty of loggers in town, but very few women. 
I think I read the ratio was like nine to one. So one of the early pioneers, Asa Mercer, went around South America and went to Massachusetts and actually went to Lowell, Massachusetts, to see if he could entice some women to come to Seattle, which he did, and 12 women did come. Teen Idol's Bobby Sherman and David Soule starred in the show, along with a local actress from Edmonds, Bridget Hanley. But the real star of the show was a theater, movie, and TV actor by the name of Robert Brown, who played the part of Jason Bolt. About 12 years ago, my wife and I were headed to Southern California. On a lark, I looked up the name Robert Brown. I found out he lived in Ojai, California, which is near Santa Barbara. I called directory assistance, asked for Robert Brown of Ojai. There was only one, so I called the number. His wife, Elise Pagofsky-Harris, answered the phone. I asked if this was the residence of actor Robert Brown. She was a little apprehensive, but she did call Robert Brown to the phone. We had a chat, and I told him my wife and I were coming to Southern California the very next day, and we would love to stop by for a visit. To my surprise, he said yes. We came by and spent a couple of hours with him. It was a very delightful visit. As we were leaving, we gave the proverbial, well, let's keep in touch. Well, in this case, we did. Over the last decade, we developed a very close relationship with Robert and now what has become his late wife, Elise. Elise was a very renowned sculptor and painter in her own right. And I'm telling you, Robert and Elise were a perfect match. Okay, get to the point, Paul. Why are you telling this story? I'm telling this story for four reasons. One, I am pretty sure that a number of Kixie and KKNW listeners have some memory of Here Come the Brides. Two, Robert Brown turns 95 years old today. That's if you're listening to this show on November 17th, 2021. Three, if there is anyone who would like to wish Robert Brown a happy birthday, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Just give a memory of the show, or he was on other programs too, like uh, Star Trek and uh, several others. He's been in movies, so you may have seen him in another capacity than me. But again, you have the opportunity to wish him a happy birthday one more time. That phone number is 425-653-1166. Four. A couple of years ago, after I met Robert, I did an extensive interview with him about six years ago and posted it on YouTube. The interview has been seen by over 23,000 people. If you would like to see the interview, go to YouTube and input Robert Brown Actor. I'm pleased to say that our interview is now the top post on Robert Brown's life. Click on to Robert Brown, Paul Casey Interview. Also want to thank Justin Bregelman of Seattle. He did a great job editing and posting the video and the photos of Robert Brown's life. Here's just a glimpse of what the interview contains. His father was butler to Teddy Roosevelt. He had an amazing encounter with Albert Einstein, spent a day with him. He was a target by communist witch hunter Joe McCarthy, and his acting career suffered greatly because of Joe McCarthy's communist witch hunt. Happy 95th birthday to Robert Brown. 
There are two outs in the bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. The Seattle Mariners trail the L.A. Dodgers by three runs in Game 7 of the World Series. Who would you rather see step up to the plate? Mitch Hanniger or a promising but yet untested player just called up from the minors? If Mitch Hanniger is your choice, that means experience is important to you. That's what Voices of Experience with Paul Casey is all about. People with experience in their chosen fields. Topics explored including public affairs, self-employment, travel, health and fitness, history, and adventure. Welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Voices of Experience is simulcast on AM 880 KIXI and 1150 AM KKNW on Wednesdays at 3 p.m. Voices of Experience is also rebroadcast on Kixie Sunday mornings at 11 a.m. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Thanks for listening. My thanks to Kara Cooney, Francis Mays, Victoria Beach, and of course, Robert Brown, visiting us from a TV show called Here Come the Brides, and for all of them, sharing their wisdom and experience with us today. Voices of Experience is simulcast on KIXI AM 880 and KKNW 1150 AM on Wednesdays at 3 p.m., and then rebroadcast on Sundays on Kixie at 11 a.m. Any comments about what you heard today, you can call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. Leave your comments. Please keep them short so I can get them on the air. Again, that's 425-653-1166. You can also wish Robert Brown a happy birthday, and I will make sure it gets to him by calling the same number. That's 425-653-1166. Now, what's Voices of Experience all about? People with experience, like you heard today, in public affairs, travel, like today, fitness, education, entertainment, adventure, with an emphasis on entrepreneurship. What drives this show? My belief is that experience is our best coach. Are you looking to make a career move? If so, listen to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs every Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. right here on KIXI. She talks about late career moves for those over 40, whether uh, you're considering leaving the traditional workforce or joining it or uh, semi-retiring. Listen to Reigniting You with Lisa Downs every Monday afternoon at 3 p.m. You can take a holiday portrait with your pet coming up this November 26th and 28th in Kent with Jerry and Lois Photography. Animals and humans are welcome for appointments starting at 8.45 a.m. COVID protocols are in place. I've seen their work. It is fabulous. To find out more, go to FamilyDogOnline.com. That's FamilyDogOnline.com, and it will start November 26th and run through the 28th again in Kent. Quote of the week, ideology separates us. Dreams and anguish bring us together. Eugene Luisco.
was air travel like during the so-called golden age? In 1955, passenger airplanes were powered by propellers. Jets were still a few years away. Travel by air was accessible, but only to the privileged few. There was plenty of leg room, and not just in first class. The bubbly flowed, cigarettes lit up, all followed by an elegant meal served by female stewardesses. Men need not apply. Fast forward to today. Yes, passengers can be packed in like sardines, but it's faster, more affordable, and much safer than even walking. My commentary today is on organization, the real importance of being organized and how that helps you succeed in business. It is one of my questions I ask on the self-employment quiz. Are you organized? In real estate, the motto is location, location, location. In business, it's organization, organization, organization. Time is your most precious commodity. The best use of your time should be spent selling your product or service. No one can do that like you. It is your vision. Don't abdicate that to someone else. Contract out repetitive functions like bookkeeping. Also, think about this. Saving two hours commute time a day will save you one full year of productivity in approximately 10 years. Organization or lack of organization often makes the difference between success and failure in the business. Success in business is all about developing systems that make doing your job at various levels easier and more profitable with each passing day. And the more organized you are, the faster and easier it will be to manage your business and make money. Being organized instills a sense of confidence in your clients and potential clients. There used to be, and I say used to be, a print shop across the street from my office. I used to walk into the print shop and see scattered files all over the place, discs in disarray. It didn't really instill a lot of confidence that I would want to leave a big print project with them. And I didn't. I walked out never to return. That print shop no longer exists, and I'm not surprised. Bottom line, always be thinking of ways of making your company more organized, and that will make it much more efficient and also save you a lot of money. And think about this, when you're on Facebook reading about flying monkeys in Australia or looking at some friend of yours or distant acquaintance on a European vacation going down the Rhine River waving at you, what did you learn from that? You really must discern how you spend your time. This is really extremely important to your overall success. Stay focused and stay organized.